Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode three. Um, before we get into the program, I just want to remind listeners that um, part of the reason why we're doing this show here is not only to you know bring audio interviews and insights and commentary, but it's also to kind of add a new dimension to what Counterpunch is and what Counterpunch provides because Counterpunch has been providing a print magazine and, an, and a web Website that has been almost like a clearinghouse for some of the most uh, incisive, hard-hitting analysis that is outside of the corporate mainstream, outside of what you would consider to be either the mainstream or even the pseudo-alternative media. And it is truly independent media, truly independent journalism. And it's one of the reasons why it's something that really has to be supported and it has to be supported in every way that, that we can. And I think that Counterpunch Radio is really just another dimension of that. And so I urge listeners to consider, if you haven't already subscribed to the print magazine, really strongly consider that because I think that it is not only worth your while in terms of just having those issues, but you become a contributor to the Counterpunch project. You become a supporter of everything that Counterpunch does and everything that Counterpunch is. And I think that that's really important. So um, with that being said, the current issue of Counterpunch that uh, you should all be receiving in the mail if you are a subscriber has a number of really, really interesting articles, as it always does, and uh, very kind of topical, very important. And um, I'm lucky enough to have Ajamu Baraka with me today. And Ajamu has an article in the current issue of Counterpunch. And um, I wanted to invite him onto the program to talk about a number of issues related to Israel and to the Zionist project and to some of these very important issues that have really come to the fore with regard to Israel and the subject in recent months. Now, if you don't know Ajamu Baraka, you absolutely should. He is one of the most, um, I would say, well, let's say erudite analysts on the issue of Israel, on the issues of colonialism, neo-colonialism, issues related to black America, and countless other uh, uh, important issues for not only people of color, but for um, the entire post-colonial world. I think Ajamu, look, I'm, I'm sort of not just hyping him up here. He's one of my go-to sources for analysis on a lot of these issues. Now, uh, uh, Ajamu is a regular contributor to Counterpunch. He's also a regular contributor to Black Agenda Report. He's an associate fellow at, the, um, at IPS. And well, without further ado, Ajamu Baraka, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you, Eric. It's my pleasure to to join you on this very historic uh, project. Yeah, well, let's not <laughs> historic. Okay, we'll call it historic. Yeah. Um, I think I'm glad. I'm glad that people are liking it. I'm glad that uh, we can bring it uh, to listeners, to Counterpunch subscribers. But I think that the most important thing here in Ajamu, I, I want to get your take on this before we dive into all of the subject matter, is that. In many ways, what we're what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring an analysis to people that is not only from a left perspective, but one that is really kind of independent of what you could call the controlled media apparatus. And I think that that's one thing you are really good at doing. That's one thing that Counterpunch is really good at doing. So before we even dive into all the subject, what do you think about that? I mean, the importance of bringing that kind of analysis to people. Well, I think that's absolutely uh, imperative, especially uh, as we see uh, more and more spaces being 
constricted in terms of, of alternatives, uh, alternative analysis, uh, alternative information, uh, with the closure of, of community radio, with the, the uh, absolute sort of limitation of, of publications on, on the so-called left. I mean, the space for, for critical uh, analysis, critical engagement uh, in the U.S. is, is, is frighteningly uh, narrow. So being able to uh, maintain a space like Counterpunch um, and expanding what Counterpunch does with this radio program, that's why I, I, I think I correctly uh, characterize it as historic, uh, is really important because, you know, as we go forward, um, it's going to be important that we, 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 we maintain all of these democratic spaces. Uh, it really is. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, I appreciate those words. But let's get into some of the important subject matter here, because your article in this in the current issue of Counterpunch, uh, it deals with Israel and it deals with Israel in this post-election landscape where we need to really unpack a lot of the issues. I think that, well, let's let's say that they are obscured to some degree in the mainstream narrative and even in the alternative narrative. So um, I'm referring to your article in the recent print issue. Uh, uh, entitled Netanyahu the Rejectionist, the cul-de-sac of Israeli politics. And this is an excellent article. I, of course, recommend everybody uh, get their hands on the print issue and check it out. But let's dive into this question. And I want to start off from a very um, important element, I think, that's embedded in your argument. And that is what we can take, not just from the results of the election, but what we can take from the appeal to racism, the appeal to racist politics that Netanyahu really made as a central plank in his in his election push, especially in the days leading up to it. So talk a little bit about the significance of how Netanyahu and the Likud party appealed to the racist base of their party and why that's so important. Well, you know, it, it was really a, a troubling um, a development. Um, we all know that uh, race has become such a uh, an important uh, and, and divisive uh, element in Israeli society. Um, we know that uh, many of our friends in Israeli society have been trying to deal with this issue for quite some time, and I've been frightened by uh, the use of race to uh, racialize uh, Palestinians, to justify uh, their their treatment. Uh, to justify the continuation of the occupation in the um, recognized ocu- occupied territories. Um, but we have seen over the last few years a really uh, very uh, concerning uh, intensification of the, of the racialization of Israeli society uh, to the point where those uh, forces that I referred to that have been concerned with the issue of race have been trying to counter the growing racism in Israeli society. I really feel um, under attack now and really, really believe that they are a shrinking minority. Um, and so uh, what we saw with the appeal that uh, Netanyahu made uh, in the last hours of the, of the election was that uh, it was an appeal that sort of blew the lid off of what we knew was already there. Uh, his blatant appeal to 
to to Israeli society to uh, join him in defending the integrity of the Israeli uh, colonial project uh, by making sure that uh, the Arabs who were voting in droves uh, could be denied their their democratic voice uh, to appeal to the to the the notion that if he was supported uh, we could forget about uh, any notion of a, a two-state solution. Um, he centered in ways that were very uncomfortable to many people. Uh, he centered the fact that this issue of race uh, and, and, and racialization in Israeli society was uh, a centerpiece of the, of the uh, colonial experience inside that country. So there was no longer any way to avoid it. Uh, and it made it very difficult for the supporters of Israel uh, to justify their continued support uh, when you had this kind of exposure taking place. So that was what I was, you know, part of what I was getting at was the kind of uh, 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 consequence for the uh, Israeli supporters, the the, the liberal uh, Zionists, if you will, uh, who were very much opposed to Netanyahu, not because they have really fundamental Disagreements, and they are some, but because of the the exposure of the uh, the inner workings or the what I could call the moral rot of the Israeli Zionist project. Absolutely right, and you know my follow up question. You kind of already addressed it, but I I, I would just add quickly that um, not only is it the issue of racism in the way that it was used for electioneering purposes. I mean, that alone is sort of understood. And for for listeners who may have missed what you were referring to when you said Arabs, quote unquote, voting in droves, that was from an appeal that Netanyahu put out on Facebook, a widely disseminated post um, in the in the I guess really about the 48 hours or 24 hours leading up to the closure of the polls that um, that the Arabs were being bussed in, that they were going to be voting in droves was a way for him to activate the hard right, ultra right, what I would call the fascist right uh, in Israel to make sure that they went out to the polls. And I think that's an important point. And really what we're talking about here from the liberal perspective is sort of a lifting of the veil, a an unmasking of what I think is a racist um, let's call it a racist ideology that is fundamental to the very fabric of Zionism. That Zionism is inherently uh, racialized, inherently supremacist ideology. And that is a very, very uncomfortable truth, especially for the so-called liberals, uh, liberal apologists for Israel. Exactly. And, and it's unfortunate that, that um, many of them still embrace the, the, the racialist justifications for, for the establishment of Israel. I mean, look, when you look at the, the main slogan, when, you, when they talk about um, that, that Palestine is a, a land without people for people without land, I mean, that is a, a, another reflection of the kind of, of colonialist uh, mentality that we've seen not only in places like Palestine, but also in places like uh, Kenya, in South Africa, uh, in New Zealand, in Australia, and of course in the United States, where basically the people who are actually there become non-people. They don't. They don't. Their, their humanity is not recognized, 
And as a consequence, then, that's why they can be subjected to the kind of, of horrors that we've seen in all of these colonial experiences. So that, that stratification of humanity, that, 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 that serves as the, as the moral contradiction of these colonial projects. And it becomes very difficult for societies to, to overcome that. You know, they have to go into denial. They have to uh, embrace a collective amnesia in terms of what they did to the indigenous population. They have to transform the indigenous population if they haven't committed genocide against it. They have to transform them into the, into the perpetrators, into the aggressors, so that you have uh, a contemporary Israeli uh, politicians talking about the war being waged against them by Palestinians. Is is a, a a strange and dangerous uh, pathological, you know, flipping of the script that uh, you know it 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 it, requ- it it results in societies being disconnected from itself uh, and undermining whatever uh, moral principles that they claim to be operating by. Exactly. Um, I want to come back to this issue of, I, I mean, I would throw out the word dehumanization or, you know, uh, subhumanization or whatever you want to call it. But before we get to that, I just want to point out something that you referenced in your article that I really think is critical uh, to examine a little bit further. You talk about Netanyahu after this election, um, really, um, well, actually not even just after this election, but in recent in recent months. Um, what you said was testing, quote, a new political line. Um, while, of course, I agree with that, I, w- I would like you to maybe explain what you mean by that and why it's important to cast any analysis of contemporary Israel within that context of the establishment of a new political line. You see, Netanyahu understands not only race and understands the, the racial consciousness in, in Israel, I think Netanyahu and the, the, the propagandists who are part of his administration also understand uh, race and, and white supremacist ideology uh, as it exists in, throughout Western civilization and Western Europe. Uh, and so what, 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 what Netanyahu attempted to do was in response to the, the uh, quite understandable um, uh, negative reaction to the, 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 the assault on Gaza last summer that resulted in uh, generalized disgust, primarily in Western Europe, uh, and, and calls for, uh, for the recognition of, the, of, of a two-state solution and the Palestinians as a, as a, as a collective humanity, uh, to counter this, this growing momentum. Uh, this momentum to recognize uh, uh, Palestinians and to to support the notion of a two-state solution, uh, the Israeli propagandists uh, begin to fall back on on their you know their traditional kinds of arguments, appealing to appealing to this the, the, this clash of civilization argument, and they were able to do that, Eric, because of one particular incident. That was the attack at Charlie Hebdo. Mm-hmm. When that when that attack occurred, while you know the Europe, while other people were talking about uh, this being an attack on freedom of speech and all that kind of stuff, the Israeli propagandists saw that they had an opportunity to stem the the tide of momentum against them. Uh, so they 
they were able to, and they started to test this line uh, of, of, of talking about the irrationality, this, this orientalist uh, conception that is, you know, that still resides in the consciousness of many people in the West. This notion of, of, of Arab irrationality, of, of Arabs and Muslims in particular, uh, being almost naturally prone to engage in irrational violence. Uh, they connected Charlie Hebdo's attack to, uh, to, to their concerns about uh, Islamic terrorism in general, and they embraced uh, their, their connection to, to Western Europe, and they reminded Western Europeans that we are in this together, mm-hmm. that there may be different names, Al-Shabaab or Hamas or Hezbollah, you know, uh, uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, but, you know, they all represent the same forces. And so they were testing this and saying that our concern in Israel, we, we don't want you all to see us as being anti-Muslim, uh, uh, anti-Arab, uh, being opposed to a Palestinian entity, if you will. Our concern is security, that if we had a Palestinian state, that because of their inherent uh, irrationality and, and proneness to violence, you all, by putting that kind of pressure on us, you are threatening the very security of Israel. So they were testing out this, this, this notion of, of, of Israeli security and connecting that to the irrationality of, of Arabs and Muslims uh, because of the kinds of, 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 of consequences that they brought on themselves with that uh, with their attack on Gaza in the, in the summertime. Yeah, well said. I think that there's two points that I would make to that, and just to get your uh, perspective on it. Number one, I think that there's a critical um, element, and I don't know that anybody's really talked about it, and that is the fact that the Charlie Hebdo attack and then the way in which the Israeli propagandists capitalized on that, they use almost the identical language from what you see in colonial France with regard to Algeria. If you go back and you look at the language that a lot of the French uh, warmongers of the time, the right wing, and actually not just the right wing, any of the colonial apologists, any of those who were pr- uh, promoting uh, France's military conquest of the national liberation movement in Algeria, they used a very similar type of argument about irrationality, about a, a devaluing of life among uh, Arabs and in, in that in that regard among Algerians. Um, and in many ways, the Israelis were kind of digging up a, a language of France's collective past and you and putting that into a contemporary context in order to sort of justify or to buttress their own position. And I think putting that, uh, attaching that to this notion of neocolonialism, that the colonial mentality is something that many people in, in the in West, and especially in Western Europe, believe to be as part of their past, when in fact Israel makes it front and center and shows that no, it's not in the past. It's very much the present. What do you think about that? I think that they, I think you're absolutely correct. It is, it is in the present. It's in the in the in the consciousness of not only uh, folks in Israel but also folks throughout the entire West. That this 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 notion of the inherent superiority of Western civilization is something that uh, even people who may not be aware of it. Um, embrace um, and operate from that becomes the framework in which they operate. Uh, it becomes the justification for uh, for supporting the, the the notions of modernity. 
Um, it is the justification for the kind of, of, of paternalistic policies that you see people engage in. Um, and so it, it, is, it, is, it is something that um, is, is a dangerous uh, reality, uh, but is a reality that uh, Netanyahu and his folks are aware of, uh, and they utilize. And I would argue that they're not the only ones, that that kind of appeal to uh, uh, the, the irrational uh, motivations of non-Europeans is used by uh, U.S. policymakers. Mm-hmm. It, it justifies their their invasions and their incursions in, in various countries. Um, so it, it's become it's always been a very important, uh, uh, a very valuable uh, uh, weapon used to justify uh, colonial expansion uh, and to to rationalize uh, continued uh, Western hegemony. Uh, exactly right, and um, we're going to head into a break in a minute. But before we do, I just want to throw out one other one other uh, sort of thing that came to my mind in reading your article. Um, you've actually already kind of touched on it, but just to kind of put a name to it, you talk about Orientalism, and of course, I think most of us who are familiar with that concept will connect it back to the famous uh, sociologist and thinker and uh, scholar Edward Said, Palestinian of Palestinian descent, and Edward Said conception of the oriental or the other and why that was so important not just for zionism and for israel but why that's so important for the western construct the western world view and i think that it's not a coincidence that the person who comes up with that concept is a palestinian himself and i think that that is very much a a, a fundamental understanding that has to be incorporated into how we look at israel zionism and settler colonialism and, you know, I brought up Algeria, uh, and I think that that's another example of a kind of settler colonialism and and uh, the conflict that ultimately led to the demise of that system is something that is almost unfathomable in the context of uh, Palestine. So um, what is what is your thought about Edward Said and the importance of this notion of the ethnic other and the otherness of the Palestinian people? Well, I think that that was that was um, Said's uh, contribution to understanding uh, the arguments being made by the Zionists, and understanding in, in, from that the kinds of, of arguments and worldviews that have helped to justify the the broader Western colonial project. That the the construction of these racialized others, who uh, who didn't have the cultural uh, development to be able to effectively utilized their their lands, who were prone to to irrational violence, uh, who didn't have did not have did not possess the the elements of of, of civilization that uh, could justify them uh, maintaining control over their resources uh, and even their their collective sovereignty. These have all been at the heart of the of, of the European worldview. And he was the one that really helped to 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 develop that that notion and to give it to give it to give it shape uh, and to and to give it a, a better understanding in terms of how it's been used uh, and from that how it can be uh, countered by people who are engaged in an anti-colonial and anti-racist struggles. 
Exactly right. So let's go into break. And on the other side of the break, I have a lot more I want to discuss with you, including some of the very recent developments and how they fit into a global political understanding that we need to be applying here. So um, on the other side of the break, I'll continue my conversation with Ajamu Baraka. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much. And we'll be right back. Punch Radio. I'm chatting with the Jammu Baraka. Um, you know, we we covered a lot of issues that are you know that that you kind of bring up a Jammu in your article in the most recent issue of Counterpunch. Again, the article Netanyahu, the rejectionist, the cul-de-sac of Israeli politics, and you know um, it's interesting because developments move so quickly. Not just you know in in the context of Israel, but just in general. And it seems like in many ways some of the issues that we've been discussing have been accepted accelerating in recent in recent weeks and in recent months and um so since you've written your article we've had this major incident in israel this uh this attack on an ethiopian jew uh by the police forces there and uh, being caught on video of course and that leading to very public demonstrations that have been broadcast you know the scenes of which have been broadcast all over the world so um i want to get your analysis of that incident and the protest that it sparked. And um, if you could tell us what you think that it reveals, really not just about the treatment of blacks in Israel, but about the nature of what Israeli identity means and what Israeli identity politics really is. That's a very um, interesting um, uh, comment and and question. Um, You know, again, many of us who who try to follow um, uh, Israeli politics uh, weren't really that uh, surprised by by the eruption uh, because we know that the Ethiopian community has been involved in in in, in um, uh, voicing its its concerns about uh, the continuation of its second class treatment uh, in Ethiopia. I mean, in uh, in, in Israel, um, and it. You know, they didn't frame their concerns about their discriminatory practices in terms of, of, of raising the issue of how they were perceived by uh, the mainstream Jewish community. 
but there was that 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 element was always there. That is, you know, they raised, by them raising the fact that they were being discriminated against as Ethiopian Jews, black Jews, if you will, it did call into question uh, this notion of what is in fact is representative of the of the authentic, uh, the acceptable uh, Jewish individual and, and community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that question, you know, again, has been part of the reality of Israel, but never really uh, dealt with, in, 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 you know, in, in a in an honest and forthright way, because it's almost been assumed uh, that the, the real uh, Jewish individual uh, the authentic Jewish individual is the uh, person who is, in essence, a uh, Ashkenazi uh, immig- immigrant from Eastern Europe. Exactly. Yes. And that the the other uh, members of the Jewish community, be it uh, Maserati, Sephardic, uh, Ethiopian, you know, that they are sort of the 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 wannabes, if you will. Even though, if you look, if you understand anything about the history of these communities, it should almost be the the opposite. Mm-hmm. But that notion of of Jewish identity, you know, it, it has not been dealt with uh, effectively. Um, and the fact that that notion of Jewish identity that has been racialized has not been talked about. When I was in in Palestine just a few months ago, uh, we had a chance to meet with one of the co-founders of the Black Panther Party. Uh, in Israel, the uh, uh, Black Panther chapter that was started by members of the uh, Maserati uh, Jewish community, and their concern was 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 connected to the fact that they felt like they were being systematically oppressed by the the, the Jewish leadership of, of of Israeli society. So this 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 notion of 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 caste uh, and race. Uh, it's all mixed up into the whole notion of Jewish identity, the the identity of the of the Israeli uh, uh, bourgeoisie. I mean, it 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 has created a uh, a very complex uh, reality in in in, Jew- in 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 Israeli society, but a, a reality that very few people seem to be willing to try to penetrate and understand. As I was saying before in some of my comments. There are some people who have been trying to deal with the issue of, 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 of race and, and Israeli society who have been, you know, trying to engage and understand how uh, they can counter the growing racism. But even with some of those efforts, they have failed to really penetrate the, the complexities of these racial questions within, within their society. But now with this, this, this issue around Ethiopian Israelis, uh, with the, uh, the the attacks on African migrants uh, by uh, vigilante groups in Israel um, and the fight back from Ethiopians, uh, now with the concerns about what is really going to be the reality of, of, of Palestinians who are also Israeli citizens uh, as uh, Netanyahu and his coalition uh, seem to be moving toward uh, this notion of Israel being seen and declared as a Jewish state, all of these issues of identity have to come to the come to the surface uh, and even though they may be coming to the surface now, uh, the unfortunate reality for Israeli society and its colonial project is that these issues 
cannot be reconciled. It cannot be reconciled with the continuation of that project in its present form. Exactly. You know, there's a couple of points that I think are critical. And, you know, obviously there was, I mean, I know, I I know that you were kind of uh, incorporating it into your response there, but there was an implication in what I was asking there when I using the term identity and politics, because it's not just, I guess, let me put it this way. It's somewhat of a misconception that um, Israel represents a, a a politics of Jewish identity exclusively, that the drive for a Jewish state, that Jewish-only roads and Jewish-only neighborhoods and Jewish-only, uh, you know, developments and settlements and all of this, that it's not simply about Jewish supremacy, because part of that is actually about whiteness. It's about white identity and white supremacy. And so I think that that is oftentimes left out of the narrative, left out of the discourse about Israel and about what the Israeli state really is. And I think that that is something that really comes to the fore in this uh, in this recent incident with the Ethiopian community, because these are Jews, and yet somehow they're still not acceptable. They're still not what they're supposed to be in terms of the Jewish state. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's, and, and that is, that is, that, that the issue of whiteness uh, and, and connected that to the colonial uh, reality. I mean, that is the, as you said, that, that is, that is the issue that very few people really want to talk about. Uh, and that is the pushback coming from sometimes even uh, liberal Zionists who uh, support a two-state uh, process, um, you know, who are friends of, of, of Palestinians, uh, they are also not really prepared to deal with the reality that they are living in a white supremacist uh, colonial project uh, and that the only way that you're going to be able to overthrow white supremacy is in essence to dismantle uh, that state uh, to have an effective uh, and authentic process of decolonization. And many uh, of these liberal uh, Zionists are not really prepared to go to go that route. That's why that two-state solution is so important for them. That's why they were so upset when uh, Netanyahu, uh, you know, exposed the fact that that uh, there's no real uh, uh, internal constituency in Israel for a two-state solution. You know, it 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 undermined their ability to perpetuate the fraud, this ruse. Of, of two states, you know, and it made them uh, uncomfortable and, and outraged because it, it it meant that basically everybody who lives in that state, they're now implicated. They're now collaborators with the continuation of the oppression of, of Palestinians. Yeah, that's 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 so true. And one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to ground this part of our discussion uh, in this issue of supremacy, white supremacy. It's Jewish supremacy and white supremacy, and in many ways it's almost it's almost impossible to really divorce the two from each other from the perspective of the Zionist project. Um, but there's another reason why I wanted to frame it in that term, because 
I think one of the reasons why this uh, incident and these demonstrations in Israel of the Ethiopian community are so resonant internationally is because it's all happened within the context of the situation in Baltimore and within the context of the things that are happening in the United States with regard to race, with regard to white supremacy, with regard to police brutality and all of these issues. So they kind of, they, they dovetail with each other and in many ways, they reinforce what I think is a critical question that people around the world need to be asking. So um, can you talk a little bit about that and whether or not you think that the relationship between what's happened in Baltimore and what happened in Israel, I mean, is this something that really needs to be drawn out? And what's the significance of that for for our purposes here in analyzing them? I think there's a, a very, very important connection. And that is that we, in both examples, we see two things. We see the, the, the manifestation of, of anti-black racism. Um, uh, and we see that taking place within the context of two settler colonial projects. You know, people tend not to want to see the, the situation in the U.S. as the continuation of a settler colonial project. But in fact, objectively, that is what it is. There was no I mean, from the very beginning of, of, of the U.S., when it, it first began to invade uh, the indigenous territories uh, and the British established their, their colonies, uh, that process of, of, of colonization uh, continued even after the so-called revolutionary process when the, 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 the descendants of those colonists decided to break away from, from the mother country and to establish their, their political independence. Uh, they, they continued... A, a, the settler colonial project, uh, and they in fact, you know, murdered and shot their way across the territory that we now refer to as the United States of America. Uh, in the process, they they imported uh, thousands of Africans to to provide their free labor. Uh, those Africans ended up uh, uh, after the the war and after many years of other kinds of of, of, of economic and social changes, uh, confined to various uh, uh, urban areas. Uh, for in the, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, um, and as the U.S. economy transformed itself, itself uh, and those communities were left behind as it uh, restructured uh, itself along a new neoliberal lines, uh, you, you have the kind of concentrated poverty, uh, uh, economic neglect, uh, that created the kind of conditions that we see in places like Baltimore. And the result resultant uh, 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 resistance that we saw in Baltimore and Ferguson and other places. So, you know, this is the reality in the U.S. And in, in Israel, you have a, a, the reality we talked about in terms of the, the second-class citizenship of, of the Ethiopian community. But this notion of anti-black racism, uh, of black people being at the bottom of society uh, and resistance, yeah, that's, that's the context for the kind of of, 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 of surprise that people saw when they saw the resistance in Ethiopia. Uh, and Ethiopians themselves, especially in their first demonstration in, in Jerusalem, they made the connection. They talked about how this was connected to what they saw happening in Baltimore. You know, so that connection in terms of, 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 of blackness and black people uh, resisting uh, uh, discrimination and oppression, that was, that was made. And that's why it was so outrageous for 
uh, is Israeli authorities to be associated in that way with Boston and with being exposed uh, as not only being racist toward uh, Palestinian Arabs, but being racist even toward other uh, Israeli uh, uh, Jews. Yeah, that that's that's precisely right. And there's another there's another um, element to this, or maybe another angle, I should say, that I think is also important. And I mean, I know you bring it up in the article uh, in Counterpunch, and you know, you talk a lot about this issue. And I know you're, of course, not the only one. I mean, Elon Pape and many others. This this question of incremental genocide and incremental genocide. Uh, in the context of the Palestinians, of course, and especially in the context of Gaza, I mean, we see this, right? We see this, this, I would say, gradual, although in many ways it's not even gradual, process uh, in, by which Israel attempts to not just oppress the Palestinian people and the people of Gaza, but to essentially erase them, to destroy them as a cohesive group, to destroy them as a geographical entity, to destroy them as really a... a an ethnic identity and um, that incremental genocide is manifested in a lot of different ways and I think it's important to apply that same sort of terminology although it's somewhat different but still apply that terminology to black America because all of these policies all of these things that you've talked about neoliberalism and the, the evisceration of the black working class and endemic unemployment and endemic poverty and uh, police brutality and police murders and all of these things, to me, is part of an attempt to erase black politics, to erase the black working class, to erase what we could maybe call black America. And, you know, the Malcolm X grassroots grassroots movement, for instance, when they documented the every 28 hours a black person is killed by quasi-law enforcement or law enforcement officials. If you look at the statistics on uh, uh, black, you know, uh, health care and black access to education and life expectancy and infant mortality and every indicator, to me, it reeks of an incremental genocide and an erasure of blacks in America in many different ways. So talk about this question of incremental genocide and how it really should be applied to both of these groups. Now, I think that, that, that you're absolutely right. Um, and many of us have used that, that term um, uh, and applied it to, to the U.S. You know, we, we have to remember that when, when we have the, the Black Rebellion, the black resistance when it intensified in the 1960s and 1970s, that the, the counter to that uh, wasn't just the counterintelligence program of the FBI. Uh, it wasn't just a military uh, counter to that, even though that was important. Um, but there was an ideological and cultural counter to the black uprising. And the objective of, of, of those policies that they attempted to, to utilize as part of their broader counterinsurgency against the black liberation movement was to, in fact, erase blackness to ensure that another generation that, that developed in the 1960s and 1970s would not emerge in the same way. Uh, and there's a number of things we can point to. I don't want to go into all of them right now, but, but the result of this counterinsurgency movement was to, in fact, create what we have today, where basically any conversations around the particular the cultural particularity of African people in the U.S. no longer happens. Uh, uh, you have black 
people now who identify completely, many of them, with being a quote-unquote American. Mm. Uh, even in light of the, the uh, depression-level material conditions in the U.S., uh, the one group that had the most positive uh, 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 position on, on the conditions in the U.S. under uh, uh, Barack Obama and right after the economic crisis were black folks. Mm-hmm. And, and so this kind of, of consciousness didn't just, uh, again, didn't just emerge out of thin air. It was part and parcel of a process. Uh, and I think what they have been successful, what they were, have been successful in doing is, in fact, to create this new kind of black person. They have been fairly successful in incorporating large sectors of the black middle class into the broader American project so that when Barack Obama goes to Selma, he can talk about this, this, this narrative uh, of the U.S. that basically is a narrative that privileges a, a perspective, privileges a, a, a white nationalist uh, perspective and, and position as representing the American way, the American narrative, one in which the only thing that black people could, could, could aspire to do was to integrate into this broader American experience. Uh, and there was no resistance to that. In fact, very p- few people even recognized uh, the, the subtext of Barack Obama's speech in Selma. So they have been successful, I think, in erasing, if you will, uh, the, the, the black you know, radical uh, consciousness. But because of the objective conditions in the U.S., because they have not been able to completely eradicate and erase you know, uh, the black working class and, and the black poor that still, resi- still resides in these urban areas, you know, and, and, and now that those, those populations are, su- are superfluous, you know, and now they are, are rising up, you know, the legitimacy of the U.S. state, the, the reality that black people are still here, and that now black people are in resistance, is starting to reverse some of the successes that they made over the last few decades. So, as, as Cabral used to say, you know, resistance, you know, even under a colonial experience, you know, it, it, it retreats back into the people. It retreats back into the culture of the people. See, in the U.S. is that the, it was black folks, you know, in, in, in the hoods, you know, if you will, in the rural parts of this country. They still retained some degree of integrity in terms of who they are as people. Uh, and that, 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 that retention, that oppositional consciousness is starting to, starting to, 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 become more exposed and becoming uh, a more of a political force now. And um, as a consequence, you know, we're going to be able to uh, reverse the kinds of, of, of progress that was made to, uh, to, to, to cool out, if you will, uh, black resistance over the last few decades. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's also one of these questions that is systematically uh, not addressed or underrepresented in discussion of all of these issues. Um, you know, Ajamu, we're coming to the end of, uh, of our discussion here. But before we before we end this, I have to ask you on a on a slightly different issue, but I think it's of critical importance here. You know, um, you know, I wanted to get you on the program to talk about Israel and to talk about Palestine and to talk about, you know, 
know, a lot of these issues that we've discussed. But, you know, I know I, I follow your work closely, of course, and I know that you're also very focused on geopolitical issues as I am, and you follow things, uh, developments around the world very closely. And so before we go, I want to just give a little bit of analysis, geopolitical analysis here, uh, as it pertains to Palestine. And I think that this is an angle that is also almost never discussed, and that is the alignment of the Palestinian political establishment within the context of the region and the developments in the region and the importance that that has on how uh, Palestine and Palestinians will be not only treated, but their political, their, their, let's call it their journey for political liberation. And what I mean by that is specifically in Gaza, for instance, you have the leadership of Hamas. Hamas is a central player in the political leadership of the Palestinian movement. At the same time, we've seen in recent years the attack on Syria, right? And we've seen the way in which Hamas has quickly aligned itself with forces that are, uh, let's let's say, aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood, aligned with Qatar, aligned with Saudi Arabia, aligned with some of these forces that are traditionally opposed and, and currently opposed to Syria and to Iran and to Hezbollah, who are really the three, I would say, mainstays of support for the Palestinian people over the course of a number of decades. So what I'm getting at is the political alignment of the leadership of the Palestinian people, in my mind, is is critical to kind of projecting where the Palestinian resistance will go. So can you speak to that and maybe the importance you see uh, uh, of the abandonment of Palestinian political leadership of Syria and of Iran and how that plays in to the development of all of these issues? Wow. Yeah, I mean, we we can have a whole show on on this on that question, yeah. Eric. I mean, I mean, you know, the 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 the, the kinds of, of 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 political maneuvering that we've seen over the last a couple of years have has, has really been astounding. Um, I, I believe that the Hamas made some some critical mistakes, even though I understand why they made the moves that they made in terms of Syria. But the the result of of Hamas abandoning uh, Syria. Uh, aligning itself with uh, these reactionary uh, forces um, in Qatar uh, and, and the Saudis, uh, the result has been the general weakening of, of the Palestinian uh, resistance as a whole. Uh, and when you connect that to, you know, the kinds of, of missteps, uh, confused policies uh, coming from the leadership of the, the, the Palestinian Authority, uh, primarily the uh, uh, Fatah wing. I mean, it, there is real disarray among among the leadership, um, and so that's why you have among the people, Palestinian people, you have uh, new kinds of of resistance, new kinds of formations developing, which you know they are they are uh, taking the position that uh, the Palestinian leadership is out of step, uh, disconnected from the aspirations of the Palestinian people and that there has to be uh, new leadership. And that's why, uh, for example, the Palestinian Authority has such uh, uh, problems trying to maintain its ability to uh, carry out the the, the wishes of Israel and control the population in the occupied territories. They have lost so much legitimacy. So it is a very complicated uh, situation 
um, and it's one in which uh, it's going to be. I'm really, I'm at a loss in terms of trying to determine, you know, what in fact may happen. I mean, if you could, yeah. for example, you can if you can explain why we see what's happening in places like Yemen, you know, I mean, and connecting that to this the, the realignments taking place in the so-called Middle East. I mean, who can explain some of this stuff? Right. Well, look, I mean, <laughs> as you said, we could do a whole show on that issue and maybe we'll have to we'll have to have you back on and, and unpack a lot of these issues. But I would just I would just posit a couple of points. Number one, that anybody who's interested in um, supporting the liberation of the Palestinian people has to consider a regional context within which the Palestinians are operating. They don't exist in a vacuum. They exist in a very volatile region where shifting alliances are are really kind of changing the political and the geopolitical landscape and uh, to ignore that issue I think is to do a disservice to the Palestinian people now I say that of course understanding that um, I don't want to be accused of, you know, attacking Hamas or attacking the Palestinian Authority or whatever, as if I'm, you know, justifying, you know, Israel's attacks on them. Not at all. What I'm suggesting, rather, is that those people who want to uh, discuss and analyze and promote Palestinian liberation need to do so within this larger context. And remember, I mean, traditionally, Syria has always been the Syrian government under Hafez Assad and under Bashar Assad has been been a staunch supporter of the Palestinian people, providing them refuge and not just tent cities, but, you know, real, um, you know, let's call them refugee settlements, real cities such as the camp at Yarmouk. Um, And of course, there's a whole uh, complicated conflict, military conflict happening over Yarmouk right now. Uh, Also, of course, Iran has provided uh, support, political support, economic support, diplomatic support, and of course, Hezbollah as well. And that th- that tripartite alliance of Hezbollah, Syria, and Iran is really under assault by an international campaign in which Qatar and Saudi Arabia are major players, of course, backed by the U.S. and in the shadows, certainly Israel and Israeli intelligence. And I think that... Um, seeing it in that context and seeing the way in which Hamas uh, political decisions have aligned them with precisely those forces in Saudi Arabia and Qatar who have been doing deals with the Israelis, who have been working with the Israelis, who are, just as you said, the forces of reactionary politics in the region, this complicates and and, uh, sort of uh, muddies the water for the question of Palestinian liberation, both within Palestine and within the region region as a whole exactly yes so you know i mean i guess we don't have an answer to that question and i i don't i certainly don't expect you to you know encapsulate all of that in two minutes but i wanted to bring this up because it's oftentimes quite controversial particularly within the palestinian solidarity movement the bds movement all of these Mm -hmm. different movements people don't want to discuss the geopolitics of it because it gets it gets hairy and it draws dividing lines between many people who claim to be supporters of palestinians and yet are very quick to attack those elements in the region who have supported them traditionally i think you're absolutely right and and it's very it's very difficult for those of us who are not in the region you know but who who support you know palestinian liberation uh and it's very uh heartening to see you know the kinds of divisions especially you know the kind of attacks we saw take place and still take taking place regarding uh, syria 
I mean, for, for forces to align, to align themselves up with the forces that are trying to dis, dismember Syria, uh, it makes no sense to me. Uh, and no, no matter what you see as the internal contradictions in Syria, to align yourself objectively uh, with U.S. imperialism and with Israel, uh, it makes no sense if you are really a supporter of Palestinian liberation. So we, we know we have those divisions. Uh, you know, we, we, we can uh, comment. Uh, and, and critique, uh, but I think what we see with those divisions is some of the general confusion, political confusion we see among many left and progressive forces uh, in the world. I mean, you know, be it Syria, be it Libya, uh, be it what's unfolding in, in Ukraine, I mean, there is real uh, political uh, confusion uh, in many quarters uh, among the left and, and, and the progressive community uh, today. And it's really, it's really, uh, really unfortunate. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I'm going to have to have you back on to just unpack that issue alone. But unfortunately, <laughs> I think we're out of time right now. Um, Jamu Baraka, I want to thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Again, listeners, uh, you need to be following Ajamu's work. It's some of the best anywhere that you'll find anywhere. Um, again, he's a regular contributor to Counterpunch. He's a regular contributor to Black Agenda Report. Um, you're at IPS, I believe, if that if I'm not mistaken as well, Ajamu. Maybe if you want to just tell people anything that I might have left out where they can find your work. Uh, they can go to my, my site, uh, ajamubaraka.com, A-J-A-M-U-B-A-R-A-K-A.com. Um, and as Eric said, um, you can find myself at Black Agenda Report uh, and, of course, on, on Counterpunch. Excellent. And uh, so again, uh, listeners, do follow Ajamu's work. It's some of the best. And again, I implore you, if you're not already a subscriber to Counterpunch Print Magazine, go uh, do that, please, because not only are you going to get good analysis like what you're getting from Ajamu in the most recent issue, um, but it's also a way of supporting this project. It's You become a supporter of Counterpunch financially. You become part of this, um, this, this Counterpunch family, the extended family, and I think that that's really important. I mean, how many places are you going to get this kind of analysis? So I'll leave you with that thought. Please do consider supporting Counterpunch in whatever way you can. Ajamu Baraka, thanks for coming on CP Radio. Thank you, Eric. I really, really appreciate it. And listeners, we'll speak to you all very soon. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.